Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent bass. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know your lines, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. My name is Jason Peters, and with me, as always, is the man who is currently opening a cat-themed bar and grill, Mr. Ryan Seaboard. What's up, Jason? How's it going for the last time this season? I know. I cannot believe it. We have made it all the way through our junior year. That's right. We are presently wrapping up our season three finale here with you on this episode today, listeners. And man, it has been a wonderful season. We'll go ahead and do a little bit of a retrospective of sorts, or at least a greeting, sending off, if you will, at the end of the episode. But in the meantime, Ryan, buddy, I I have got to tell you, man, I am so excited. I I, I would only imagine that I would be on the opening night guest list for this new (laughs) feline theme bar and grill that you've got in development. Give us, give us, tell us about it. You know, what's, what's it called? Where can we find it? Tell us about the development, the menu, anything. Give our listeners a peek behind the curtain on this. Jason, I regret to inform you our funding got pulled. It's really tragic. What? Yeah, I know. We were off to such a great start. It was a project I was very proud of, um, but uh, unfortunately the concept was all wrong. We're reworking it and we're going back to the drawing board. Uh, the, the bar itself was called Nine Lives, and I thought that was a great start. I thought it had a catchy name. Um, but see, uh, you know, being cat-themed, uh, all our uh, cocktails were milk-based, and it was all, you know, very, very dairy-based. Uh, you know, people were getting sick. It, it was not good. Ah, that's too bad, man. I know. Well, I mean, is there – I mean, did you course correct or just it's done? We doubled down. So uh, the bar and grill. So the grill portion uh, was uh, just a lot of rat and mice-based dishes. Um, not not very good. Uh, it, it tested very poorly in, in our focus groups. Um, you know, little rat spare ribs. Number one, they're not very filling. Very, very small portions. Uh, it was almost tapas. So, you know. Not 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 a good concept at all. All right. That's unfortunate. Well, maybe next time you'll go back to the drawing board and get something a little bit more robust. In the meantime, I believe we have a film to discuss today. We do. Jason, listen, here's the thing. Um, I was telling you this before the show, but I have been on the road uh, doing work and stuff for video production. I came back with a little bit of a, a head cold. We're working through it. I... Uh, have been on a little bit of a nip here and there of Robitussin. Um, I'm here to tell you, this is the perfect movie to watch and discuss (laughs) while (laughs) dealing with Robitussin. Robitussin is amazing. It is, you know, you have to ask yourself, what are we, what are we doing here? Is it, it, does it taste like licorice, uh, grape, uh, prison toilet wine? Yes, yes, yes. It is not drugs, but it is drugs. So we're going to continue on and get right into House from 1977. Google has this described as in an effort to avoid spending time with her father and his creepy new lover, young gorgeous resolves to visit her aunt's remote mansion with six of her closest friends in tow, including the musically inclined Melody, the geeky prof. Gorgeous arrives at the estate where her supernatural events occur almost immediately. A severed head takes flight, household appliances come to life, and a portrait of a cat seems to contain an evil spirit. That sounds crazy enough, and that doesn't even scratch the surface. Jason, I cannot wait to ask you, what did you think about this movie? Ryan, I will be happy to tell you right after a trailer for this movie that doesn't exist, or rather it does, but it's in Japanese. So instead, we'll just go straight into it, and I just need a good place for us to start. At the beginning. That's right. For the last time in season three, we will go back to the beginning of this film called House. 
after our Toho studio card. That's right. The same studio that brought you Godzilla is the same people behind the film House, which think they're very different films. And apparently a lot of the people over there thought so as well. We'll get into that later. When the film starts, we're greeted to a very funky 70s jam that is playing over an animated title card that is equally funky. And we get the infamous low baritone host that was actually recorded by the film's original composer who ended up not scoring most of the film but did still contribute some music. Now, when the film kicks off in earnest, we see this sort of greenish black and white of two schoolgirls named Gorgeous and Fantasy. They are placed sort of inside a a small rectangle uh, with a distorted surrounding frame. And as we track with her, there is a moment where She steps out of that rectangle into the full frame. The image takes over the entire screen. From there, they're discussing the end of the school year, and they're sort of walking down the hall, and we've got this very sort of jaunty, like flute-heavy 70s melody that's playing. It's got a very unique sort of almost fluffy feel to it, and we're tracking through these school halls while we talk to this teacher, or the girls do, rather. So, Ryan, the thing that's crazy about this film, I think one of the things that most stood out to me is like how not only how much this film is, right? Like we talked about like a Morris Peros earlier this season being a lot of film. And I think you could definitely say the same thing about House, but also in terms of just the distinction of its visual aesthetic and its its oral aesthetic as well. But but specifically with regards to like the visual sensibilities, we've got this very unique editing. We've got these hyper real backgrounds, hand drawn animated visual effects, heavy, heavy use of matte painting. And, and all of this is presented in literally the first three minutes and 47 seconds <laughs> of the movie. So yeah, I'll let like, you know what it is right away. Yeah, yeah. So knowing what it is very quickly, like, is this a film where you were like in from the beginning or were you a little like, Oh no, this is going to be way. No, I was totally in. Um, you kind of teed this up for me just in the sense that I think you compared this and I, I've seen this compared to, uh, this as well uh, online, but you said it's kind of like a live action Scooby-Doo, you know, it's, it's very whimsical and, and, uh, uh, you know, it's a crazy film. And, you know, I did appreciate that it doesn't pull any punches. It leans heavy into what it is. So, you know, my whole thing, and I've said this, uh, as long as you've known me, you know, we've been doing these sketches for a while and stuff for this show. It's just commit to the bit. So if this is what you're going to be, shove all in. And boy, did they ever, <laughs> you know, the music, like you said, the, uh, the aesthetic, the matte paintings, sometimes matte paintings inside matte paintings. We'll get to that when they like get off the bus. Uh, yeah. you know, there's a lot of crazy stuff that goes on, but it is what it is. You're either going to love or hate this movie. There's very little in between. Yeah. Well, and I think one thing that's sort of important to identify as well and I think it's like if, if somebody is maybe going to not respond positively to this film, it could be just because of the expectation that it is a horror film. Sure. And I honestly don't believe that it is. And even the filmmaker, Obayashi, doesn't doesn't really refer to it as a horror film. He refers to it as a ghost and fantasy film. Sure. And I think that's a much more appropriate descriptor because the thing about this movie is – For it having many traditional horror tropes to it and horror elements like, you know, beheadings and blood coming out of walls and like all this sort of stuff, it also does so with this very sort of lighthearted tone. Like the beginning of this film feels like a sort of candy coated sitcom almost. Even the way that the music is playing, we get that like very silly scene with the the old man who falls in the bucket and it like takes him away in sharp sure. motion. And there's like all these ridiculous fanciful elements. And so again, it almost plays like a like a children's sitcom at times and then it's juxtaposed by these very sort of traditionally scary visual images of floating severed heads and blood geysers and all of that so there's an also an interesting juxtaposition between those two things i loved it personally i I really love the heavy stylization of everything same i don't know if over stylization is a word but if so it would definitely apply here this is like you know what this film reminded me of it reminded me of like that David LaChapelle super gloss hyper reality look yes. that was popular in like the early 2000s and late 90s yep. and such. Very familiar. And everything's just very vibrant and candy coated and colored. And and there's also this sort of like gleeful sense of the macabre, right? A little bit of like 
the more fanciful, lighthearted portions of Evil Dead, let's say, right? So, you know, definitely not discussing like the tree rape scene, for example, but, you know, in Evil Dead 2, like where the decapitated head does like the dance with the chainsaw, right? Like that's a very silly sort of like we're talking about all these almost cartoon moments that find themselves into these horror comedies, which I guess is, is the closest descriptor you could use for House, or at least that's what I would use. So. I have in my notes uh, that this reminded me of Evil Dead meets Fritz the Cat. Um, just in the sense that, <laughs> that's you know, it's it's a horror, but like Fritz the Cat, um, we co- which we covered at the very beginning of this uh, series, uh, was like, you know, it would t- tackle these very serious issues, but A, because it was a cartoon um, it would disarm you going into those serious topics uh, and graphic uh, situations. And then also it would play against like funky R&B music and um, a lot of 70s uh, aesthetic, you know, that that very late 70s or early 70s in the in the U.S. I, like I said, it, it's it almost played like a Sid and Marty Croft, uh, like Land of the Lost or the Banana Splits or something like that, where it's like super cheesy. So it's hard to take the hyper hyper stylized violence seriously um, because of everything it's playing against for tone to lighten the mood. Um, and we'll get into some of these things for reasons why. But it's also, uh, you know, laying down a lot of serious metaphors as well. I think that uh, I was really interested when I took a deep dive into this movie, because on first watch, you're just like sucking it all in and it is overload on the stylization, like you're saying. But then when you start to sit back and pick it apart to find out what the director, um, uh, Nobuhiko Obayashi was saying, um, there actually is a bit of a through point, a narrative, a message and so on. I, I thought it was a really interesting film and I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. I also think it's interesting that they committed really hard to that hyper real sensibility to the point that, they were shooting this on Toho Studios, again, very prolific movie studio, and they actually rejected utilizing like all of their special effects supervisors right. because they felt that they would make the effects look too real and they wanted it to look like intentionally fake. Yes. That was a very intentional decision. I also love that they used like pretty much every single camera trick that's ever been invented. <laughs> they threw right. in this one 90 minute movie right. and everything is done, you know, in camera or on film, you know, there's no, um, obviously this is, you know, well before, uh, the invention of modern, uh, optical effects and such. So, but yeah, man, it's just all over the place with regards to the inventiveness of the way that they present these different deaths and, and different images and you could, it's almost like every scene to them was like, hey, let's experiment and see what we can do here and see how creatively we can present this event, this moment, right? whatever it is that they're throwing up on screen. Yeah, it's it's also worth mentioning this came out the same year as uh, Star Wars. So, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Now, when we get back to the film, Gorgeous goes home to her dad's apartment. She's going to be more or less our protagonist. And by the way, I don't know what set. They use, I don't know if this is like a Toho set, but that apartment that dad lives in that we see like has been used in several different movies. Oh, it has? And I don't know what it is, but I, I was watching a Pedro Almodovar film recently called Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, and one of them lives in that same apartment. And then I forget the other movie, but there was another movie where that same setting was used recently. So like I, one day I'm going to find out what set that is because it's a really – unique it stands out right so you're saying that the dad's apartment that he comes home to was used in a pedro almodovar film yeah and it's and it's popped up in other films as well and you can tell just because it's so unique with the way that the the sort of square pattern that leads to the balcony outside and then it's obviously a sound stage because there's like a backdrop that's used interesting so yeah but it, but in 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 that same film it looks very hyper real so uh, yeah, I don't, I, that keeps getting recycled. One day I'm going to find out where that is. So you think people are going to Japan to go film at Toho Studios to replicate this look of house? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, it must be Toho, or maybe it's like a movable set that they keep renting out, like the, uh, like the buildings from uh, Hudsucker Proxy that you were talking about, where they're <laughs> right. like, hey, w- hey, WB, we'll right. sell them to you and you can make it Gotham City. They're just like, well, we got this cool, you know, breakdown set. Like, we'll ship it to you for pennies on the dollar. And he's like, cool. Even more interesting would be if it was, you know, replicated to homage this film, that it's that popular <laughs> of a food movie that people are like, dude, you got to give me that apartment from house. 
gotta get it. That's funny. Now, we're told that her dad is remarrying and we, in fact, meet the fiance. But Gorgeous is upset because she just wanted to spend summer with her father, the two of them. So she's not going to go on vacation with him anymore. She's going to go back and meet her six school friends that were quickly introduced to with close-up wipes again. Just like a damn sitcom, dude. It's like too many cooks the way that it introduces (laughs) each of the six of them and then wipes it to the next. And there's so many elements of that where i understand why so many of his contemporaries criticized a lot of his decisions i I think that they work and you know they all come from the same mind and it is a very fanciful film but in a vacuum just looking at some of these decisions it's like why are you doing tv stuff in your feature film Eh, that's strange you know well he came from a commercial background and um correct so he you know he was a commercial director uh, very much like Inaritu that we just spoke of uh, in Amores Peros just a couple weeks ago. So, um, you know, he had made hundreds of commercials and a lot of these techniques had been perfected and worked very well when you're marketing dish soap or perfume. <laughs> you know, uh, you could get away with some of these cheesy effects uh, when you're doing a 30 second ad. But then when you apply it to a feature film and it's nothing but these effects and motifs, um, it gets layered on pretty thick and starts to feel a little scattershot at times. But uh, on that said, still worked for me. I was still <laughs> loving it every step of the way. Absolutely. And we quickly find out that the school friends all have a plan to stay with their teacher for the summer at the teacher's inn. That's uh, kind of weird. Not and appropriate. like crushing. <laughs> Not appropriate. <laughs> one of them is crushing very hard on this teacher. Yes. And the teacher. Fantasy comes wants back to and- bang Mr. To- was it Mr. Togo? <laughs> is that it? Mr. Toko, something like that. Yes, yeah. Mr. Togo. And I think he definitely wants to as well, but he's like, ah, shucks, that inn's not available, man. It's too bad. I was totally going to score with one of my students. This yeah, because his, so they were going to his sister's house and then his sister got pregnant. And he's like, I got bad news. Sister got pregnant. House not available. <laughs> and they're like, what? Womp, womp. By the way, Mr. Togo, sweetest mutton chops of all time. That guy was rocking some serious 70s chops. So then Gorgeous suggests that they stay at her aunt's house in a surreal sequence that's sort of, again, like an acid-soaked sitcom. It starts with these workers who are like whistling to the score that we hear and nodding back and forth. And then the guy's painting and he like falls in this bucket and he's like, ah, like the bucket like moves in stop motion animation and like takes him down the street. And it's just absolutely silly, silly stuff. Again, though, this is, you know, these are effects that he had perfected in these commercials, like all this stop motion animation. Um, You know, he would shoot that one frame at a time or remove frames. Uh, And when you're shooting on film and and such a low budget, uh, it was all kind of cutting edge. It felt very Sesame Street uh, in a lot of ways. But yeah, it was cheesy, but it was fun. Um, I think it is worth mentioning real quick before we go any further that um, these girls, uh, their names are all named after their personality. So as we move forward in the conversation for the listeners, um, we have... Uh, fantasy, who is the one that's always fantasizing heads in the clouds, blah, blah, blah. We have Gorgeous, whose aunt we're going to meet out in the farm in the castle. We have Prof, which is short for professor. She's the smart one. We know that because she wears glasses. We have Mac, which is short for stomach uh, because she's always eating. She's supposed to be the chubby one, though she is not at all chubby at all. Uh, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> um, what am I missing? We're, we've got uh, Kung Fu. Kung Fu. Who's the athletic one. These, this all plays out like the Spice Girls, basically. They're named after their yeah. personality traits. And so as we move forward and start, oh, and Melody, um, which is a, who's a That'd musician, one. creative one, uh, and all of that. And Sweet, who is the childish one. Oh, yeah. Forgot about her. So um, these all... Uh, play out in the desk that they receive as well. They get their comeuppance in according ways. But uh, yeah, as we move forward, this is kind of like a a Spice Girls meets uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves kind of scenario where everybody is named for their character traits, how they're dressed, how they act, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and we also see on the train that there's images of the girls that are passing by in the window. And it kind of reminded me a lot of the effects that Coppola did for Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah. There's just a lot of like superimpositions and matte paintings and all of that. You know, it's like, it's like a, a, it's almost like a, like an anime, like a, like a hyper stylized, hyper kinetic anime version of Dracula. Right. With much better acting. Yeah. Even though (laughs) Gary Oldman aside. 
But yeah, so now one of the other impressive aspects I think of the visuals is the camera work and the lighting as well, which were both pretty uniquely done. Did you have a chance to look into any of that or did any of that stick out to you? No. Why don't you uh, enlighten us? I'd love to hear more about that. So it's the late 60s and Japanese cinema has kind of fallen out of favor with the public at the time. Television was introduced and so you didn't really have a lot of the movie stars informing fashion and film just like wasn't on a lot of people's radar. And so as a result, it was kind of in this point where there was a changing of the guard where the old traditional Japanese filmmakers like Ozu and Kurosawa, they were kind of reflective of what most people felt like Japanese cinema quote unquote should be, but the movies were not resonating with audiences. So, you know, they were critically well received, but audience audiences didn't care. And so eventually these films kind of fell out of favor. And so I think that one of the more interesting aspects of that, that informs the development of this film is that Obayashi saw that and wanted to deliver a film to people that was in the vein of what they wanted. And so he sort of intentionally went out of his way with regard to how he shot this film. And he actually said he, he one of the well, one of the mantras that he told himself is when he was trying to figure out his blocking and his camera angles, he thought, what angles and what shots would make Kurosawa and Ozu cringe. <laughs> right. He literally asked himself that. And then that's how, that's where he would use. So Nailed he it. would go up. <laughs> yeah. He would go, you know, up on rafters and do Dutch angles. He would have stuff low, you know, basically everything that uh, all these non-conventional shots. And so as a result, you know, it's just like, you've got this unique music. You've got this unique camera work. You've got this unique lighting. And then you slap on all the unique effects too. Yeah, exactly. And so it all kind of comes together in a very unique way. And I thought that, you know, this could have very easily just rested on its laurels in terms of, you know, the camera work being a little more traditional because the special effects were going to do so much heavy lifting. But if you actually look at the camera work, we're seeing tracking shots. We've got booms, you know, oh, zoom yeah. ins push-ins, it's traveling a lot, it's exploring the environment. We've got this sort of 360-degree shooting axis that Obayashi is considering when he's staging everything. Wow. And so, again, it's just like, it's it's the works, right? This is like the works pizza with all of the appetizers inside served with it, you know? Again, right. very similar to the way that we discussed Amores Peros, but on a more fanciful and zany tonal level of course than that film's very intense dramatic uh, notes sure now when we get back to the film we see the bus is dropping these girls off in satayomo village this is where the titular house is going to be located the girls walk through the forest and they get an odd encounter with an overweight man who is warning them about the house ahead now again this gentleman is actually the film's original composer as well as the guy who says the title of the film at the beginning in that very low register. The girls arrive to the house with some creepy music. The doors open to reveal the aunt in the wheelchair. She's the one who is the owner of the house. She's dressed all in green. And quickly, one of the girls, I believe maybe sweet, but she wants to take a picture of everybody. And we see that the cat, when the camera is taken out, there's a cat named Blanche that the aunt owns and the cat's eyes sort of flash this like diamond green. And then when the girl goes to take the picture, the camera actually like jumps out of her hand and goes to the ground and shatters. Yeah, you have totally so, skipped over the cat part because the cat, when when uh, Gorgeous goes to write her aunt to get permission for these girls to come visit uh, for the summer, the cat like comes through the window and joins her. And so randomly there's this mysterious white fluffy cat um, that is now, mm -hmm. and, and she names her Blanche or names the cat Blanche. And the cat then... Uh, just randomly kind of follows them back to the aunt's house. They go to get on the train. The cat is there. And they're like, oh, there you are. And, and the cat is kind of joining them on this journey. Uh, and we find out later that it's a bit of a uh, witch's familiar of sorts. It's also the cat that's yeah. uh, prominent on all the posters and advertisements. So the cat has uh, kind of an anchor in the whole uh, story as we move forward. But yes, um, something is weird uh, going on with this cat that kind of... Uh, is a bit of foreshadowing that 
we're not in Kansas anymore <laughs> with these green sparkly eyes. Yeah, and apparently that's something that's a bit of a trope in Japanese folklore is like this idea of a haunted cat or a ghost cat or okay. a possessed cat or something like that. So it wasn't like an entirely unique invention to have this witch cat. It's kind of like a thing that's been in Japanese folklore. For Interesting. A while. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. I have a little bit more to say about uh, some of those things and the and the history and, and impact of this film, but I'm gonna kick the can down the road a little bit and wait till you we get a little bit further in the narrative to talk about that. Sure. Yeah. So in terms of the film, in that case, we have Mac and she's stealing a watermelon as the girls enter the house. We get another great shot from above as the girls enter. One of the first things to occur is the chandelier breaks from the ceiling, falls down, and kills a. Very, what would you call it? Claymation animation, uh, that lizard? Yes. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Informing a lot of those like mid uh, 90s music videos from Green Jelly and such that would come later. It was kind of like the the Sumatran rat monkey from from Dead Alive. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or the Sledgehammer music video from Peter Gabriel. There you go. (laughs) Now, as there's a piece of the chandelier that drops off, it's sort of like a spike and it's going to hit one of the girls. So Kung Fu... Our heroine, who is going to save the girls time and time again throughout the course of this film, kicks the broken piece away from the group, uh, goes into the wall. She saves her friend. And then Mac wants to refrigerate the watermelon, but there's no fridge. And so what she's going to do is she's going to chill it by tying it to a well, rather tying it to a rope and lowering it into a well that's in the back. And she quickly goes missing. So fantasy goes searching for her. And sees the rope in the well, pulls up the watermelon. We see that it's actually Mac's head and it's kind of bloody with these fangs and it flies around. It leaves the thing. It vomits blood aggressively onto the ground and then very quickly goes back into the well. Now, we can talk about a lot of the very specific deaths over the course of the film, Ryan. We'll get into that, I think, on our next little chunk here. But the other distinguishing aspect of this movie that's just incredibly distinctive and does a lot of heavy lifting with regards to providing the aesthetic of the film that we see and that we experience, and that's the sound design and the score and the music. Now, this is just as stylized as any of the visuals in the film. It's very unique. Again, at times it can be almost jaunty and sitcom-y. It keeps a very light tone throughout that sort of juxtaposes the visuals at times. And then in terms of sound design, there's also a lot of random sort of unmotivated sound effects that Obayashi will incorporate into scenes. So whether it's like teeth chattering in the background or some waves crashing randomly, despite the fact we're in an apartment, there's a lot of those elements that get imbued in this film to help define what it is. So what did you think of the sound design and music? Did it, I mean, did you, did it work for you or was it a little cheesy? I mean, obviously it was cheesy, but did it still work for you? Yes. And yes, <laughs> yes, it was cheesy, <laughs> but yes, so is this movie. So it just kind of fit. Correct, it, right. It, you know, yeah. it was what it was. It was all performed by a band named Godaigo. Um, and funny thing about the soundtrack is that it was actually scored before the movie was even shot or made. He had this soundtrack yeah. done um, as a promotion. So a little bit of backstory on this, and, and I'm going to kind of layer this out in chunks, but uh, basically the, the, the long and short of it was he wrote this script based on a suggestion by his daughter because um, they were Toho Studios was in dire straits, just like you were saying. Um, films and cinema weren't as popular as they once were based on the popularity of television, just like you said. So uh, Obayashi, having this prominent commercial career, wrote this script and they were looking for the next Jaws. Jaws came out in 1975, was the largest uh, box office uh return it in cinema history at that time. And so everybody wanted the next Jaws. And so, uh, you know, he presented this script to try to get kids in the seats and they wouldn't let him direct it because Toho was still on the studio system as we used to be back in the day. So they were only hiring contracted yeah. directors. So they were like, we will green light your script. We'd like where your head's at, but we're going to hire one of our homies to go ahead and direct it. Well, none of their homies wanted to direct it. So it just sat in limbo for a while. Meanwhile, 
uh, this dude's a fucking hustler and he's out promoting this shit as if it's getting made and is coming out next summer. And he made a soundtrack. He made a novelization. He made a radio play. Um, he made a manga on and on it goes. Um, he was even handing out business cards and flyers saying, come see my new movie. And, uh, yeah, there was no, movie. <laughs> it wasn't even, he wasn't even supposed to shoot it. And he basically pigeonholed the studio and did all this self-promotion. And he's like, dude, the whole thing is set. All you got to do is let me make this movie. So they're like, all right, fuck it. So, uh, anyway, yeah, the, the score, all that to say, uh, and the song and the, and the theme and all that by Godaigo was already made, which I thought was really interesting that he kind of shot this movie around the, the score that already existed. But in all fairness, it is kind of all based around two central themes. The piano theme that Melody plays uh, towards the end, plays several times throughout in various fashions and tempos. And then there's that uh, really funky, heavy wah-wah pedal. Fucking Godaigo rock soundtrack. So you kind of just have two real big songs um you know and then everything is kind of various versions of those things but i loved it i thought it was cool yeah and more and more than that i mean i think just the sound design as a whole is really interesting sure. if you're gonna go wacky and zany with the construction of your film it makes sense to go ahead and have a lot of this those psychedelic and surreal random almost like audio hallucinations so to right. speak, the way that it plays within the, the, the context of the film. So right. All yeah, the bright I, colors I think that stuff and animations. Really well. Yeah. The skeleton in yeah, the background a, on the strings chattering. The bones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, the, and there's a lot of, you know, again, just random whooshing sound effects and, you know, Kung Fu attacking people and like the old, uh, I don't know what you call it, but it's like the, the $10 million man, like, what? Right, like when they do something, whatever that that, like echoing sort of like laser sound effect is. I don't know what you call that, but yeah, there's a lot of like yeah, there's a lot of (laughs) 70s weirdness. Yeah, and most of the sound is like what you would call non-diegetic, which you know, diegetic sound for anyone who doesn't know is motivated by what we're seeing on screen. So you know, guy picks up the phone, we hear the thing clink, right? The the receiver being picked up, that's diegetic sound. Uh, but when we hear music or, you know, someone's using sound effects that do not reflect the live environment, we would call that non-diegetic. So just wanted to clear that up for anybody that didn't know. Now, from here on out, as far as the film is concerned, it's pretty much all fun house games for the next you know half hour, 45 minutes, however long we're here. As the house tries and successfully does eat and kill these girls. So that's really the whole premise behind the film it's not like a super deep film there's a lot that you know there's not a ton of substance but it's like tons and tons of style which i do think is funny you know like i this is one of i think the only films where it would be a compliment to say that it's largely style over substance right most of the time when we say that it's used as a a detriment or it's it's definitely not a compliment but in in this film i think the style is so inventive and so unique it's really just, you know, we've talked about this before. I use it all the time. Film is a pie chart, right? Or a, a, an RPG character creator. Where do you want to apply your different points? You know, there's only so many points to go around. And so in this one, they were just like, you know what? We don't need to spend a lot of time on screenplay. We don't need to spend a lot of these points on acting. We're just going to put it all in visuals and atmosphere and sound design. Sure. And I think that really makes it work. You know, lean into what works for you. Lean into your strengths. Play against your weaknesses. Yeah. Film does that in spades. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's worth mentioning that none of these girls were actual actors. They all came for, they were like models and, and hired talent uh, from agencies from his commercial work. So again, very much in the same way that uh, Inuritu hired Gael Garcia Bernal in Amores Perros. <laughs> um, you know, uh, Obayashi hired these uh, fine ladies to be in his silliness. So, um, but uh, I think gorgeous and the ant were the only ones with any acting experience, but everyone else was fairly green in that regard. Uh, but I think they did a pretty good job actually for what, you know, what they had to work with. Um, I guess, you know, behind the scenes, everybody had a great time shooting. They were all just having a lot of fun. Uh, so yeah, it worked. Yeah. So the actresses were actually cast after the film was greenlit. So the film was greenlit, but, the way the studio system works in Japan, everybody has to kind of wait their turn. Sure. And because economically films weren't really making as much money as they were beforehand, it took a long time to get these films made. So 
during those two years while they sat around and all of these other elements that you talked about before from the soundtrack. We also didn't mention that they had a radio drama that yes. was very successful that they produced out of that. So the interesting thing is that, to your point, he didn't have any of them cast. And so in those two years that it took while he was waiting and it was in development, he was continuing to work in commercials. And he said he did approximately 200 commercials over the course of those two years. And everybody except for the two actresses that you mentioned, Gorgeous and the Ant, were people that he worked with on those commercials. So he would do a commercial and, you know, one of the the girl that was in that commercial, he'd be like, oh, you'd make a really good suite here. You should consider like doing this. And then he would hire her and then seven commercials, 10 commercials, 20 commercials go by. And the next one, he's like, oh, you know what? You'd be great for professor. You have a great look. Put on these glasses here. I'm going to offer you this part. So he was casting it like as he went along, basically, in those two years that he was waiting yeah, that was pretty interesting. Did, did you did you find the performances to be distracting or did it work for you? No, I mean, everything about this film has a very sort of I don't want to say it's amateurish, but it's definitely sort of got that first time energy. You know, it's very it's very youthful, let's say. And so I think in that case, you know, it makes sense to have youthful acting, right? Sure. Uh, when you do these sort of like teen movies the performances are going to be a little bit more, you know, like CW than maybe a more grown up version of that. Right. Or even with the DC and Marvel television properties, again, tonally, they're very different from the movies. They've got a little bit more of that TV feel. So now one thing that is really interesting, this is probably the only time I have ever heard of this and it had a huge impact on the acting is the way that they were directed. I don't know if you happen to come across this. So very quickly, what he found out is that giving traditional verbal direction to all of these novices who had never acted before was not generating the performances that he wanted to. Basically, if we're going to just going to put the cards on the table, he was basically being very nice and saying, like, the girls didn't quite have the chops to do the types of emotions that I wanted them to because they, they weren't rehearsed actors. Right. Like they're new to the game. They haven't really developed those skill sets yet. So it was really hard to get them to go to certain places. And so what he found, but through experimentation, is that the girls would respond very strongly to musical cues. And so, for example, if he would tell one of the actresses, hey, I want you to be melancholy in this scene, they would have a very hard time doing that. But as soon as he hopped on the piano and started playing melancholy chords that it, that imbued that sensibility, that emotion that he was going oh, for, wow. something intrinsic in the actresses responded to that music. Interesting. And so then he was able to get the performances, something closer to what he was looking for. So, like, at the end of the day, he's like, I basically directed all these girls through music. Wow. And used music to just inform the emotions that I wanted them to, and then we captured it. And so he says that when you watch the film, there's almost this element where it feels like the girls are dancing throughout the entire thing. Sure. Like, more so than acting. It's a, it's almost like a very physical dance performance. And he said a large part of the reason for that is, again, because he was directing these girls through music. Yes. Which I don't believe I've ever heard of anyone doing. Before. I have not either. That's pretty awesome, actually. <laughs> I like that, though. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Social media is a dumpster fire with all the AI and algorithms. Who can keep up? All you want is some social interaction without leaving the house. Introducing Seance. The seance summoning game that brings the spirit of Beyonce right into your home. Just lay out the pentagram stencil, pour out the goat blood sacrifice, say the trademark incantation, and voila! Domina, Nostra, Regina, Angelorum! And another thing, Jay, the next time I- Beyonce! Oh, what in the hell? Why does this keep happening? How does it work, you ask? Like most celebrities, Beyonce made a deal with the devil to achieve superstardom. Now the Dark Lord owns the rights to all present and future public appearances, living, spiritual, or otherwise. Are you kidding me? I want to speak to my <laughs> agent. Oh, come on. It really works. Now, I love you kids, but you need to send me back. Oh, don't get a bee in your bonnet. Seance is perfect for any occasion. You'll be crazy in love with this irreplaceable game. 
Beyonce, could you say my name? Okay, I'm gonna need to take this to the man downstairs. Diabole videre! Let me upgrade ya, let me upgrade ya. What the? Oh, hi Beyonce, is there a problem? Yeah, this new Seance game you're selling has me poofing here and there. I can't get any work done. Well, you know we had a deal. Uh, kids still love seeing you and sales are through the roof. Well, why can't they just come to my shows then? Well, ticketing fees are prohibitively expensive and not even I'm gonna mess with Live Nation. Well, I can't just be summoned back and forth like this forever. Calm down, calm down. Uh, just enjoy the ride. Besides, I'm sure the summonings will reduce next month when we launch the new T-Sweegee board. That's right, kids! From the makers of Seance comes the all-new T-Sweegee board featuring Taylor Swift from Scrammo! Celebrity happiness not guaranteed, goat blood not included. And now, back to the show. Yeah, so... Something that stood cool out there. to me um, around this time of the film, as we're getting into, like you said, the funhouse portion, especially, even before that, though, is the editing and the, the pacing and all of that. What were your thoughts on some of that? Do you have any insight on that or, or did that work for you? Yeah, of course. I mean, the the editing is reflective of the film as a whole. So we've got a lot of creative editing techniques. Like I said, it's just even that opening shot, the way that, you know, they have the border all blurred out and then she steps from the inner frame into the larger frame. And I don't really have a lot of insight in terms of the specific editing techniques that they used. So by all means, if that's anything that you I don't, have, uh, we no. can go into that. But again, this was this was just him using all of his in-camera techniques that he had picked up from his commercial days and putting them to use. But the pace, I mean, it it it, it intentionally is breakneck speed. Like I said, it is breakneck speed. Yes, it's high energy. It's kind of a little bit made for kids and he's kind of very open about that in that his daughter actually informed a lot of the creative decisions on the film. Sure. I believe he gave her a credit he for did. like story design or something like that or scene design because he would basically his 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 whole position was that like adults have limited imagination. So to your point from earlier, he gets hired to make the next Jaws and he's like, you know, all of us adults sat around and the best we could do is like Jaws with bears or Jaws with ants, right? Like right, does right. not really stretching uh, th this this whole idea creatively. And so he was like I I in, in these instances I would like to sort of discuss these issues with kids and see what they think about things because the way their brains work, they'll say something that's like almost not connected, but has some sort of slight connection. And it's a way to really expand the boundaries of where your imagination's at. And it's funny because, so he said, he said his first question for his daughter is he asked her, Hey, I'm going to make a Japanese film. What, what would be interesting to you to see? And her response was, Daddy, don't make a Japanese film. Japanese films are boring. Everyone knows that. <laughs> and so he's like, he's like, no, no, no. Like, you know, I, I'm going to try to change that, right? I want to make something that you would actually enjoy watching. And so she didn't really get it. But then, like, you know, he said later they were in the, her bedroom or something, and she was sitting there brushing her hair with her hairbrush, looking into the mirror. He was kind of talking to her, and she mentioned randomly that it would be really scary if all of a sudden her reflection were to come out and grab her while she was brushing her hair. And so that informed, like, the mirror scene that we see, you know, in, right. the, in the film that we'll, you know, touch on a little bit later. And so all of those, pretty much all of, like, the deaths and the creative craziness that we see, the girl in the clock later, the, the, the watermelon severed head, all of those scenarios were actually imagined and brought up by his then 10 and 10 or 11 year old daughter, which is crazy. But that's how you, I mean, if you want to make the next blockbuster, you, you're not trying to make the next jaws. You're trying to get kids in seats like, and families yeah. and, and all of this, you want to create a phenomenon and, and create some hype. So, uh, kids create hype. They kind of generate the stream of pop culture. And so, yeah, I think he was onto the right track. You know, I don't, obviously <laughs> he didn't become the next Spielberg. This isn't Jaws here, but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, he, I think he was onto something. I think his head was in the right place. Yeah. And then when we get back to the film, this is again, where we start to see a lot of the fun stuff coming out. So 
We've got the ant. She disappears into the fridge and then she's dining on a severed hand. Then she's dancing with the skeleton while the cat Blanche sings the melody of the score that we're hearing. All very kind of silly and over the top. The piano calls to Melody, who then again plays the score theme that we do hear. And then that's when we get what I just mentioned, where Gorgeous sees her aunt in the mirror and then it shatters and then the pieces fall away to reveal these like animated flames. This is when the piano keys start lighting up. And so and then there's another very specific inspiration for one of the deaths, and that's where Sweet is attacked by the bedding uh, and the cat. And so one of the stories that his daughter told is that she used to stay with her grandparents and when she would sleep over, she had to get the futon out of the closet and it was always very big and heavy and she would always try to pull it out but like collapse under the weight of it and this scared her as a child and so she relayed that to her father and he was like, interesting, all right, looks like the futon is going to eat sweet then. And so that was a very direct <laughs> inspiration for that death. So again, like each of these these creative deaths, like actually has a very specific motivation from his daughter. So like at that same house, they uh, her, her grandparents had a grandfather clock and she would be terrified of the grandfather clock. So if she had to go to like the bathroom in the middle of the night, she would always like close her eyes and like run across the hall that like the grandfather clock was in because she was terrified of it. And so then like that makes its way later when the girl gets trapped in there and like all the blood rushes out. So. Right. Right. Yeah. I heard even the, uh, the piano scene uh, with melody. Yeah. Um, (laughs) She used to uh, have to play the piano and like the piano would like pinch her fingers uh, when she wasn't using her form. Right. Like the, her fingers would get pinched between the keys and stuff like that. And so that informed the, uh, piano eventually eating melody in the in the film as well, which was my favorite death. I think that was fantastic. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Specifically, the uh, his daughter actually mentioned that when she started playing piano, one of her favorite things to do just naturally as a child is uh, they would all go see movies together. That was sort of like what they bonded over because there was this, this idea that like it's going to be hard for a young child to relate to, you know, a middle-aged father and vice versa, but they could all watch movies together and describe that from their perspectives and, and like share in that. So they saw a lot of movies together as a family. And one of her favorite things was to come home and then try to play the music on the piano that she had just heard. And so apparently she had a, a very strict music teacher and the music teacher would hear her fingering, but then when it was not correct, she would wrap her fingers like a nun, right, with a ruler or hands or something like that. And so when her fingers would get caught, she actually said it was like a psychological thing uh, from getting her fingers wrapped on by her music teacher the whole time. So they would get dumbed up. So that's also where the the piano eating and, and coming down and like severing the fingers, you know, is is inspired from. Now, the movie was a huge hit on release as well. It is worth mentioning that critics and parents absolutely hated it to our point from earlier because it was so far removed from what was considered respectable cinema at the time. But it was a huge hit and kids and teens specifically loved it. And there was this resentment basically that was born out of that because it was basically like, well – The old style film industry is dead and gone as we knew it, right? We got to make room for these new kids and these new styles of films and it's all kinetic and high energy and it lacks the artistry and et cetera, et cetera. So there was a lot of people that were very upset by the film's success because of the sort of changing of the guard that it indicated needed to happen. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a quick second. I'm going to go ahead and jump in because I think this is a good time to talk about the history of this movie and uh, some of the... Uh, cultural impact that it had and and some of the things that actually it was trying to say, you could agree or disagree that it succeeded in saying them. (laughs) Uh, But very, very quickly, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but uh, in the fifties in Japan, and we've talked about this in Italy as well uh, in some other France with their new wave cinema and all of that. um, It's uh, you know, you have, it's all kind of designated to post-war expression. So obviously in the 40s, you had World War II in Europe. You know, we get to separate ourselves from that a little bit because that happened overseas, but they were in the midst of all that, especially in Japan. So, you know, you had all these auteurs that came out in the 50s, and that's where you get movies like Ozu's Tokyo Story, which we talked about this season, or, you know, Kurosawa's High Low, or some of these things. So, um, you know, a lot of it was, you know, really 
they had something to say and, and France and Italy as well. We talked a little bit about that with La Ventura uh, just a few episodes back too, with uh, a lot of the uh, post-war discussion of the you know new uh, construction that was going on at the time that was all in the background versus all the destruction that was going on from the war and all of that. So uh, with the 50s, you had the auteur movement in Japan. And then in the 60s, all those auteurs were successful. They all got money. So in the same way that in the 70s in the in America, you had all your Scorsese's and Coppola's and all of that in the tour movement. Uh, and then in the 80s, they all got money. And then you had all the blockbusters and everything else. And everybody kind of wanted a break from all the statements and all the heavy handed stuff. So in the 80s in America, that's when you got your Ghostbusters and Raiders of the Lost Ark and Back to the Future and all the fun stuff. Well, in the 70s in Japan, that was kind of the same thing. People were just exhausted with all the heavy handed statements and nuclear bombs and all of the stuff and metaphors. So, you know, that kind of gets us to where, you know, we are with House, where Obayashi wanted to make a statement, but wanted to make it fun and wanted kids in the seats. So, uh, you know, the aunt is motivated. We didn't really talk about this, but there's this whole scene where they go back and find her journal. And, and then even a scene on the train with the girls where gorgeous is explaining to the other six girls what like who her aunt was and, and you know why she lives in this house and all of this. And so basically her husband went to war, uh, never came back, promised her uh, that he was coming back and never returned. So the aunt is now, you know, a widow uh, alone in this house waiting for her husband to return um, we find out later in the film that that's kind of what motivates all these horrors is that the aunt has been haunting the house. She has been dead and gone for a while, but her spirit remains is haunting the house, feeding on young women um, so that she could remain alive in some fashion until her husband returns. She eventually possesses gorgeous and then, you know, history repeats itself. So uh, basically what I took from this and what I found online on the deep dive is that this is all kind of like the innocence of childhood versus like the older generation haunted by war. So the, the younger generation of all these girls live in this fantasy world where nothing matters and funky music plays. And even as though they're dying, they're whimsically kind of aloof or complacent about it. Um, but then like you have the aunt and then you have the uh, stepmother who we didn't really talk about this either, but uh, basically Gorgeous's dad is going to get remarried, which is what, you know, Gorgeous is running away from in the first place. And this woman that's coming in is, as the stepmother um, kind of resembles the uh, post-war generation trying to move on. It's a, it's a statement of like, okay, we're going to move past what was we want to you know move on but then the younger generation is too stupid and complacent to allow that to happen responsibly so you have these three icons that kind of are going along through the film with the ant resembling the war generation that is uh, kind of stuck in the past wanting what was promised to them and stolen from them by war uh, and then you have the stepmother that was um, you know trying to move on responsibly and all the youth and stuff that are just kind of moving on aloofly so and dying in the process so and then you have the cat which symbolizes the bomb itself and there's actually even a couple of really cool cuts where they show the nuclear bomb and then kind of have the cat um the fluffy white cat blanche uh kind of crossfaded in and out of that as well and the sparkles in the eyes of the cat that keep happening uh, resemble the flash from the nuclear bomb. Obayashi was quoted as saying that, uh, you, you know, he was alive when the bomb dropped um, in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And so he lost a bunch of his childhood friends. This impacted him dramatically and kind of fucked him up in the head. He had some PTSD that he was trying to work out in this film. So these things are actually legit. Apparently there's, uh, there is a bit of a message <laughs> in all this nonsense um, about post-war Japan and what it's trying to say and, and how the youth were kind of preventing, um, you know, a proper responsible moving on or passing of the torch, uh, as it were. And so, uh, though this is kind of whimsical and stuff, I thought it was very interesting that it is actually, uh, kind of historically relevant as well and had a bit of a, a message. So maybe I'm reaching too far trying to tie this into an esoterica cinema style discussion, but I thought, you know, the fact that we've covered movies like Tokyo story and La Ventura, I thought it was relevant. Yeah, absolutely, man. So as we get back to the film, we've got to the point where the girls are basically have decided they've had enough. They're going to call the police station. There's a bunch of weird shit going on. They got to deal with this and they are going to leave. But the house actually closes in on itself, boards up the windows and traps the girls inside. 
from there, after Kung Fu is unable to kick their way out, they discuss their options, the girls do. They're looking for their aunt. This is where they find the piano. And we get both of our our favorite death scenes in the film, because this is my favorite as well, which is where Melody is playing the theme of the song. And that piano comes down and chops off all of her fingers. We get this very sort of like animated electrical special effect that we've seen a couple times come throughout the film. And that's after it chops off the fingers, basically chops off the hands and then chops up the rest of the body as well. And this is also when we get Sweet trapped in the clock informed from that memory of his daughter with the grandparents house. And as Melody's as this is going on, Melody's severed bloody fingers are actually playing the melody of the score. Now, this is where we immediately smash cut to a man eating noodles. Uh, this is Mr. Toko, maybe. And the giant head of gorgeous appears. And and that's when so we, we kind of set up that like Mr. Toko is like trying to get to the house uh, and he was supposed to join them. Yeah, because they were supposed yeah. to go to his sister's house. And so he was now going to join them on this trip as well. Correct. Yeah. And, and he keeps getting held up by various things. Wouldn't you know it? Just can't get there. All this weird stuff is going on and Mr. Togo's nowhere to be found. So that's when the giant head of Gorgeous appears and it's revealed that the house is inhabited by the spirit of the ant and she eats unmarried girls, I guess because she was widowed and that's how she's exacting her revenge on the world. Because if she can't have a husband, nobody can. I believe that was it. Is that how you interpreted that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I really want you to mention too that the, the person serving Mr. Togo noodles was a giant bear in a karate gi <laughs> or a judo costume. Yes, I yeah. did. I did forget to mention that, and that does seem noteworthy. And a silly <laughs> film with a lot of silly shit. That right. of course a bear is going to serve, and, and then you know we'll get to his fate here in a second, which is just equally ridiculous. And after we get that again uh the, the the reveal of the aunt there's also you know this this crazy sort of animation that occurs and we've got flying furniture and flying utensils sort of going all through the house and that's when it sort of sets up the sort of a final battle so to speak uh, between kung fu and the aunt so basically how all of this is going to get resolved is like there's been there's this like picture of the cat, which is is very famous. You see it on the cover of like the DVD and used in a lot of the posters and such. But there's a picture of a painting rather of the cat that's in the house. And so I guess the uh, way that we're going to resolve all of this is that Kung Fu is going to kick uh, that picture, which I guess would be where the soul of the cat lives if we're going to try to intellectualize this, which maybe we shouldn't. And that's going to kill the soul of the house, which is going to, of course, cause the ant to be destroyed and going to set up our sort of final denouement here. But before we do, Ryan, is there just are there any final thoughts on this film that we haven't touched on that you want to throw out there? The panicked look on the on the stuffed puppet cat's face when she gets when the painting gets karate kicked was <laughs> forever emblazoned in my brain. I. I need to like find a screen capture of that to use it as my phone wallpaper. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm just like, you know, this is one of these films where it's like, you're just glad it exists, or at least I am, right? I know right. a lot of other people feel that way because it's so unique unto itself. And I love this movie. Yeah, and it's in the best way, right? And this is, look, this is the unfortunate reality is that when you have these really self-indulgent projects, from these very unique and artistic directors of which I would argue this is one of those that can go south so quickly. You're talking to someone who just went and saw Bo is afraid the other day. And man, I, I, just, <laughs> I could not stand that film. It was so, so bad. And it was, it's, it's arguably the most self-indulgent film that I've ever seen. And in that case, it was horrible. This film maybe second most self-indulgent film I've ever seen. And it's great and it's lovely. And so it's really, it's unfortunate, you know, because sometimes when you just give a, a, a specific sort of director, full creative vision, they can really go to some unique places, but then sometimes those unique places don't really make for an, an entertaining or even interesting film, you know? So this guy pulls it off in spades 
And it reminds yeah, but it's, us- it's worth mentioning this is an hour and a half. Bo is Afraid is almost True. a four-hour self-indulgent, <laughs> you know, gut punch. So Yeah, where nothing happens for like two and a half hours. It's so plodding and so boring. That's like oh, the worst it- thing of Bo is Afraid is just how fucking boring that movie is. My goodness. But, you know, by so comparison, literally everything you could imagine happens in this film. So <laughs> Yeah, and this is not boring at all. We've got a breakneck speed and it's – it's also a reminder, you know, especially for people like us, right? Like it's very easy to appreciate these very deep, intelligent, dramatic films with a, a very specific worldview or some interesting, unique flavors that we haven't seen before. And that's all very appreciable. But sometimes it's also easy to forget that like making movies is fun. Watching movies is fun, right? Like fun is is not always a word that we ascribe to good films, but like a good film can just be a fun experience. I say this all the time. Like if, you, if you're going to try to tell me that Jurassic Park isn't as good a movie as The Godfather, like I'll fight you on that. They're very different movies and each one is as good at what it's trying to do as the other. But don't you know? I could I could sit here and make a case that Jurassic Park is a better film. I mean, I, I I don't think it is. I'm not sitting here putting that on record. But the point is, you could make that argument because it's a different type of film. And so, in that same respect, I think again, it's a good reminder that like cinema doesn't have to be all existential dread or metaphorical presentations it doesn't all have to be some deep insight on the human condition a lot of times cinema can just be fun and a good time at the movies and that's exactly what this is and 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 it's innocence reminds us of that because in spite of all of its horror elements i think it does have a very innocent tone to it that keeps it very light sure so after that we do see as far as the film is concerned professor dies Fantasy finds gorgeous. She tears her shirt and nuzzles her very maternally with these sort of exposed breasts and gleaming eyes, reflecting that painting of Aunt from back in the day and letting us know that she is going to take over that role. Now, this is where we fade to black and we do see Gorgeous's father's fiance who left at the very beginning of the movie and we never saw her again to go to go visit them. Uh, she does arrive at the house. And that's again when we see Mr. Toko's fate where earlier he asked for what was it? When he asked for noodles or he asked for something else and they said that we don't have that, but we have bananas. Watermelon. And, and then we come back later and he's now just an entire silhouette of bananas. And so I guess he got turned into bananas. There was the watermelon salesman who, to, to what you were saying earlier, was the original composer of the film or whatever. That's where Melody, or that's where Max stole the watermelon from uh, when she put it down the well, it became her head. Uh, and then, so when Mr. Togo was on the way to the house, he also stops by the watermelon uh, salesman, and the watermelon salesman tries to sell him watermelons. He says, no, I don't like watermelons. He says, well, what do you like? And he says, bananas. And then he gets in the car, and he goes, bananas, 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 bananas. And next thing you know, we catch up with him right now, and he's turned into a human-shaped pile of bananas. Somehow. Yep. Makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> don't know why. But it doesn't need to in a film like this. And we're basically sent off from this film with some Japanese yacht rock playing as Gorgeous welcomes the fiance (laughs) to the house, having fully taken the place of auntie as house comes to an end after 88 minutes or so. So, yeah, you know, uh, obviously, you know, not a ton of meat in terms of like a deep dive you know there's we don't really have to there's not a lot of symbolism that we have to really break down here or understand character motivations you know this is this is commercial filmmaking on an indie level so to speak like it, it, it occupies a very weird space in cinema in addition to just being weird with its own sensibilities but the inherent juxtapositions that take place because again it's a it's a it's a horror movie but with a lighthearted cartoonish tonality that ends up appealing to kids and then you're getting a bunch of kids in your theater. But then there's also like some adult trappings in terms of like female nudity and, you know, graphic violence. So but but the tone in which it presents those things is so lighthearted that 
it doesn't hit the same way that it would if really anybody else presented it, you know? So it's, it, again, it's, it's, it's a unique film that I love, but to try to explain its success, like this is just one of those unique projects in and of itself that exists in its own space. And if anybody else tried to do the same thing, they would fail because it's just so unique unto its creator. You know, it's so idiosyncratic that I don't think anybody else could just come in and achieve the same results. Now do want to remind you all, even though this is our last episode of the season, we are going to keep some strong content coming to you in the form of our five minute reviews. We also have some additional featurettes that we are working on. And so we would love it if you would go ahead and subscribe or follow on whatever your preferred listening platform is. From there, we would also love it if you could please rate and review us. It really helps spread the word. And then, of course, just continuing to recommend us to your friends via word of mouth. We appreciate that tremendously. And again, really hope that you guys enjoyed season three. I know Ryan and I feel very strongly about the structure and format of the show at this point. We're really enjoying doing the five-minute reviews, and we like that you guys are listening to those and enjoying them as well. Uh, we're seeing some people out there on social media who are actually here listening to our reviews and going out and checking out some of these movies. So, like, that's super gratifying, and we appreciate you guys, again, just sort of continuing to help spread the word on that. Now, as we do, we're going to go ahead and formally wrap up this episode with our three adjectives, Ryan, for the last time this season, what do you got? Three adjectives for house. I have zany because it is. I have dorm room pizza because as much as I loved it the first time, I think it's even better the second time around. Uh, <laughs> this movie just gets better every time I'm subjected to it. I did deep dive after deep dive on this preparing for this episode and uh, every time they would show one of these scenes, I don't care which one it was. I just couldn't wait to watch this movie again. I will go see this several times over by, by the end of my days. Uh, and then my last one is Bjork. Because much like a Bjork uh, song, I will never talk about it. I will never recommend it to anybody. But if someone comes to me and says, hey, do you like Bjork? I'll be like, oh, my God, yes. Let's talk about Bjork. So uh, <laughs> zany dorm room pizza and Bjork. How about you, Jason? That's funny. My uh, first one is actually the same one I got for you, which is zany. So apparently you were over here watching me do this somehow uh, all the way from Tampa. Don't appreciate that. But hey, here we are anyways. Number two, I've got psychedelic for obvious reasons. And then number three is just very simply fun. So this is a zany psychedelic fun film. I think that accurately describes the experience that you get with Haosu. For the last time this season, Ryan... Go ahead and give me your grade rating for House. House. I'm giving this one an A minus, Jason. Ah, nice. Very good. Very good. I think that pretty much matches what I got, which is four and a half stars out of five. I give the star ratings. Ryan gives the grade ratings. I think we both had a lot of fun with this one. You know, not probably enough meat to quite justify that full five star A plus rating. But again, this is incredibly stylized in a way that no other film has really been able to recapture since it's a unique viewing experience unto itself. And as such, definitely recommend anybody who is listening to go ahead and check that out. If you like fun, which we all do, you're going to like this movie. Ryan, you got anything you want to say to our listeners before we wrap the hell up? I think that's about it. Catch us next week for another five mini. We're going to keep this thing rolling until season four kicks off. We got some new surprises for you. So stay tuned. Yeah, so we are going to be actually introducing some video content for the first time ever. So definitely keep your eyes peeled for that. We're not going like full video podcasts yet or anything like that. But you are going to start to see our faces out there a little bit on the old internets and social medias doing some unique content there. We obviously, as this is the last episode of the season, we will not be pulling any films we will not be going to our random.org true number generator, but I do still want to encourage you all to go ahead and visit the website to keep abreast of what we will be doing in the off season. As a reminder, you can reach out to us on Instagram at esoterica cinema. You can reach us via email esoterica cinema at gmail.com where we will field all of your muffin and movie related questions. 
you know, we're happy to take that feedback and put it to good use and help continue improving our show in a way that works for you. Because ultimately, as much as we do this for us at this point, you know, we're trying to do it for you guys as well. So let's all make some awesome content that we all enjoy and love. In the meantime, this is Jason Peters for Ryan Siebold saying thanks so much for listening to Esoterica Cinema. Enjoy the movies.